Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Don't be scared of these premises cases that have so many, you, you know, you think they have a lot of holes and all that, but if you have a client that you believe in who's trustworthy, you can overcome a lot of this stuff. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Uh, so, Yvonne, you're doing this uh, podcast from your bedroom, I understand. I knew there, I should have no, just. There's no privacy on this show. We just put it all out there. I knew I should have just lied and been like, oh, I'm in a different part of my living room. <laughs> exactly. I mean, but, yeah. But yes, I'm podcasting from my bedroom like a 13-year-old, no, like that's YouTuber. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so as Steve- long, As long as you're comfortable. Yeah, yeah, that's what counts. <laughs> um, so Steve, tell us about, you just got back from the Southern Trial Lawyers uh, yeah. meeting. So how yes, was that? We went to the Southern Trial Lawyers meeting up in Louisville. Louisville, am I saying that right? It was Louisville, pretty good. Kentucky, I think yeah. I got uh, and uh, saw a lot of great people. Uh, had a, just had dinner with our um, guests that we had on not long ago, Ron Johnson and Jay Vaughn, and uh, just had a great time. Went to Churchill Downs and lost money on horse racing. Cool, cool. Did you? I assume at the dinner you guys just talked about how much you wished I was there. Yes. yes. That... How, how much okay. we missed you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Cool. 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 Yeah. Cool. But uh, but lots of fun. And they uh, they definitely wanted to tell you hello and and um, and we did miss you there, Yvonne. We always okay. Do. Thanks, thanks, yeah. thanks, Steve. Well, uh, <laughs> let's get to our uh, let's get to our guests that we have on today. We have uh, two fantastic trial lawyers, uh, Daniel K Kramer and Teresa Johnson from Kramer Trial Lawyers APC in um, Los Angeles, California. And you can look them up at KramerLaw.com. That's K-R-A-M-E-R law.com daniel and Teresa, how are you doing 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 pretty good you know not bad not bad thanks yeah, for we, having us this is great we uh we learned uh daniel you told us earlier that you have uh had tested positive for covid and you're you're uh you are properly um quarantining yourself but um but that uh you're not a hundred percent up to snuff but you're you're a, a trooper to do this with us. I, I am. And clearly we are sharing everything apparently. <laughs> yeah, um, <that's> right. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I'm fully vaccinated, super careful, have a pregnant wife and a toddler. And somehow I got a breakthrough infection, just found out at five o'clock this morning. So I am sequestered to my bedroom for the next seven to 10 days while my son runs rampant throughout the yeah. house. Yeah. So, I'm sure that'll um, be fine. Yeah. Yeah, I'm actually supposed to, we were supposed to start in a, a big employment trial a week from today, and I have to have a conference with the judge and opposing counsel here in about an hour to see what they want to do. Um, my guess it's going to get kicked. Yeah, yeah. So, you, so you're supposed to start in one week, or are you? Yeah, one week. Okay. Yeah, literally uh, picking. It's supposed to be picking a jury a week from today. Oh so yeah, that's probably not going to happen. Yeah, well, that's too bad. That uh, that that really sucks. Yeah. Um, well, um, well, Daniel, let's let's give everybody a little bit of background about you and Teresa. And Teresa, uh, you you've been sitting there uh, patiently and quietly. I just want to make sure we said, uh, said hello to you as well. Hello, nice to be here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, um, Daniel, we'll start with you. So uh, Daniel is a trial lawyer, like I said, a founding partner of Kramer Trial Lawyers, uh, has had multiple 
multi-million dollar verdicts and settlements, uh, is a graduate of uh, University of Colorado Boulder, and then went to Southwestern Law School, uh, where he also served as an adjunct professor after law school, um, has had uh, multiple verdicts in the top uh, 100 of California, uh, is a graduate of the Jerry Spence Trial Lawyers College, the uh, Consumer Attorneys Association of Los Angeles, uh, Plaintiff Trial Academy, and the Trojan Horse Method, uh, and has been named as a top attorney by Pasadena Magazine from 2013 to 2020, uh, a rising star super lawyer from 2018 to 2020, and was a finalist for CALA's Rising Top Plaintiff Attorney Award in both 2017 and 2018, and is a uh, one of the youngest members, I understand, of the uh, of ABOTA, the uh, American Board of Trial Advocates. Um, but I think what um, we, Yvonne and I find most interesting is that Daniel is a, an Atlanta native and, um, and a diehard uh, Braves and, um, and Falcons fan. Yes, yes, I am. Uh, Braves are my first love. Dale Murphy, growing up, he was my hero. I try to watch every game I can. I uh, got the MLB TV. I absolutely love them. Well, they yeah. are, uh, they're in a battle right now. So um, hopefully they can pull it out. I mean, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure the only thing that's holding us back is getting, getting your wife into the fandom, right? Isn't that basically <laughs> all we needed to, to do it for the Braves and maybe turn things around for the Falcons? Is... Yeah. Uh, I got my son on board. I think okay. the first nice. words he said was go Braves. Uh, <laughs> yeah. My wife slow to come around. I'm yeah. hoping to get her on the buffs and Braves bandwagon. It'll happen. Yeah. It'll yeah. Happen. Yeah. We'll wear her down. Yeah. 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 Well, hopefully <laughs> she's not rooting for the Dodgers out there. I mean, no, I would never let her. I mean, yeah. Not, not yeah. that I would let her not let her do <laughs> exactly. anything. She's a, yeah. her own person, but I right, think right. she would. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, well, uh, I mean, uh, speaking of Dale Murphy, I just want to say that, uh, growing up when I played uh, little league, I had a Dale Murphy glove the whole time. So, um, he was, uh, he was also one of my favorite players, even though I didn't grow up a Braves fan, I am now a Braves fan, but, uh, nice. I grew up a, uh, a Baltimore Orioles and Cincinnati Reds fan. Uh, and I still like them too, but, uh, I've adopted the Braves since I've lived here in Georgia. Yeah, it's got um, you, you got it with the Orioles. They've been struggling. That's right. Yeah. The, well, and I noticed I noticed in the race that the Braves are having uh, with the Phillies in order to you know uh, see who wins their division um, that the Phillies play the Orioles and the Orioles yeah. have the worst record in baseball. So uh, hopefully the O's can pull it out for uh, for the Braves and, and beat the, the Phillies a couple of times. Um. Yeah, I'm a big Orioles fan this week. <laughs> yeah. <exactly. laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, and uh, and I want to make sure we introduce Teresa Johnson. Uh, Teresa is a graduate of Scripps College and Loyola Law School, and uh, since 2016 has had four of the top verdicts in California, is also a graduate of the uh, of CALA's six-week advanced trial skills class. She's uh, published and written extensively on cross-examination and jury selection uh, and had a fellowship by ABOTA. She's originally from uh, Bloomington, Minnesota, and, um, and is a rising star super lawyer uh, for 2020. And I noticed that uh, one of the things that uh, Teresa likes to do can't be that easy because she likes to take walks with her cat, which, uh, which my daughter does as well. And I know it's not an easy thing because uh, do you do it on a harness or are you... Uh, how, how do you? Oh, I, I guess you I'm not the only crazy person who tries to walk their cat. <laughs> right, um, right. Yeah, we we trained her from a young age to be on a harness, and we'll take her out um, to parks and stuff like that. But she tends to get really nervous if she gets 
uh, her paws wet with like grass or anything. So we end up carrying her for most of the time. It's not right, right, <laughs> a true yeah. walk or anything. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So this makes me think of, I totally forgot this happened. It kind of feels like a fever dream, but over the weekend there, these two dogs in the neighborhood chased a cat up a tree, like in a cartoon or like a 50 sitcom or something. And the way they come, they had just come by and trimmed like all the lower branches on our tree. So on our trees and like in our area. So like the lowest tree, the lowest branch is like two stories up. So this cat is stuck up there and I'm like, are we going to have to call the fire department? One of my neighbors went up there in this like super tall ladder. We had, we were holding a blanket under the tree, like a, like a, like we're at the circus, you know, like a circus, like, um, <laughs> right, yeah. I had Me. brought like chicken out there, like rotisserie chicken, trying like to the lure cat's it out. Gonna jump for the chicken. Nice. <laughs> so, it, it worked in the end, but it was not pretty. It was not pretty. Oh, wow. There was a lot of <laughs> yowling and scratching. I, I definitely know what that's like. Uh, uh, one of our cats uh, uh, will, we have a tree that grows kind of close to our house and he loves to climb up that tree and then jump onto the roof of the house and then just sit there and meow because he can't get down. Yeah. And then we've got to figure out how to get him off the roof of the yeah. house. And it's always a pain. Yeah. Daniel, Teresa, I don't know if you guys knew, but this is a, this is a baseball and cats podcast now. So, so we mentioned trials at the last five minutes or something. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> get to the, get to the good stuff, Steve. I will. I will. I will. Yeah. So let's talk about this case. I, I mean, one of the really great things about this case and, and um, this is it, we, this is our second podcast uh, that we have talked about where a trial was tried uh, during COVID or after COVID. I mean, not after COVID, obviously, but at least when COVID had sort of wound down a little bit, but it was tried in August of 2021 in Los Angeles County. Uh, the name of the case is Louis Acosta versus Mass Realty LLC and Athena Management Inc. And, um, and it resulted in a $12,622,238.75 verdict on behalf of Mr. Acosta. And the basic facts are uh, that Mr. Acosta was a 35-year-old electrician for a uh, company named Horizon Lighting. He had been called out to, do, to service uh, the lights at a strip mall in Riverside, California that was owned by Mass Realty, but the management company was Athena Management. Um, and when he went there, he noticed that the photo cells for the lights, uh, were not working. The lights were on when they weren't supposed to be. So he was trying to figure out what was going on with the photo cells. He goes into the electrical room that I understand the lights weren't working in there. Uh, but there was a door open. So he had some lighting and he saw a ladder that went up towards the roof and there was a, uh, roof hatch up there. Uh, the ladder was about two and a half feet too short or didn't go all the way up to the top of the roof. Uh, and he, he climbed up there. He had his tool belt on uh, and opened the roof hatch. And the roof hatch is supposed to have, um, and you, can, you guys can explain this better, but it sounds like it's supposed to have essentially two um, safety latches that basically hold it up and would and prevent it from slamming down. Um, and so he opens the, the, uh, roof hatch and as he's trying to climb up and because there's this two and a half foot gap kind of has to swing his leg up onto the roof, uh, and his tool belt hits, uh, one of these latches, one of which wasn't even there, one of which was broken. Um, and basically the, the, this, uh, door that weighed somewhere between 40 and 60 pounds, 
slams down on him and kind of uh, um, pins him between the roof and the door, uh, causing him severe neck, back, uh, arm injuries, um, that he ended up having to have a, a, a cervical disc fusion, as well as a number of other treatments for. Um, and the and so um, and so he suffers injuries. And um, part of the claims were that uh, about two years earlier, um, Athena management, when they came in in 2014, had hired a company uh, to look at all their their roofs to see what needed to be done. And they wrote an extensive uh, email um, talking about the that this uh, roof hatch was broken. Um, and that they needed to fix it, that the ladder didn't um, conform with OSHA requirements, um, and that it was essentially dangerous. Uh, and instead of fixing it, they decided to just um, postpone that for a year to de December 2015. Um, and, um, and then when December 2015 came around, they had other stuff they wanted to spend their money on, so they postponed it again to December 2016. And unfortunately for Mr. Acosta, he was uh, out there on August 10 of 2016, and this uh, door hatch, roof door hatch, still had not been fixed. Um, and uh, essentially, uh, that's the claim. Now, one of the things I understand, Daniel and Teresa, is that they weren't uh, just upfront with the fact that this roof uh, roofing company had come out there and told them that this was a, uh, a dangerous roof hatch and, and didn't tell you about the, uh, the emails and what they had been told. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I got to say, Steve, you clearly do your homework, man. This is, that was just an amazing <laughs> opening statement of my case. You probably did it better than I did. No, no, no. I read your <laughs> opening statement. It was very good, but, and you're closing it. I definitely want to talk about that. I really like both of them. Um, yeah, I mean, basically this management company, we had just sued them and the property owner. Um, the property owner was this do really wealthy doctor who buys a bunch of strip malls and he hired Athena to manage this property that he owned. And they denied from start to finish about knowing any knowledge of the roof hash. We're like, we didn't even know about it. We didn't even know the incident occurred. We didn't find out until we got served with this lawsuit. So we do all this discovery. We're like, this is going to be tough to prove notice, right? Um, because there's no indication that they did it. But then when I'm taking the deposition of the PMK for the property manager, Athena, she starts telling me about the roofing contractor called the Roof Depot, who's the one that inspected all of the roofs and the hatches of the property. And so we're like, well, you know, it, we think they have some liability. So we brought them in. Right. I mean, I think it was maybe before he answered, Teresa, or right after they answered, he's like, wait, they said they don't have any emails or on notice. Well, hold on a second. <laughs> Here's a treasure trove of like 30 emails where I told them two years before this is dangerous. You need to get this fixed. So it was great. And it was almost better that I didn't have it because I was able to get the PMK locked in on just all these lies. I mean, she just denied anything. But then I found emails from two weeks before the deposition that she was on with information about the the dangerous hatch so it was a great i mean it was a great way we get we got pretty lucky obviously with that um because it definitely it, it really pissed off the jury you know and, yeah, the yeah. jury, and that really helped the verdict i'm convinced of it so but the that, crazy thing was even after they um found the emails or after we got the emails and they were circulated in discovery they still continued to deny any knowledge that they knew that the hatch door was broken that it was dangerous or anything i mean we served interrogatories right before trial um, that they answered on June 28th. So just a month before trial started. 
and they still denied knowing anything was wrong with the door. And so that's really what I think pissed off the jury is, you know, they had all these opportunities. First, they didn't investigate it. Second, when they, you know, knew about the emails or realized they should have known about them, they didn't take any steps to correct any of their prior statements at all. And in fact, stood on them very strongly all the way through trial. Yeah, that was going to be my question was, you know, if if they had already answered discovery that, that that these emails would have been responsive to and hadn't produced them and then you get them, did you all think about, you know, trying to move for, you know, sanctions related to those discovery responses? Or did you just say, you know, okay, let's see how they handle this. Like let them, you know, kind of, you know, commit hang, to this position. Themselves. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that, yeah that's 100% what we do. I mean, we, we sent supplemental in California. You can do at least one set of supplemental asking them to update their answers before trial. I was hoping they weren't going to update and I was not about to clue them in because the defense firm was a, they were a good firm, but I didn't think the one, uh, the right hand knew what the left hand was doing. And, you know, they were just kind of run of the mill insurance defense firm. So I, yeah, we, we kind of wanted to just play dumb and hopefully that they wouldn't realize their error and then go correct all this stuff because I've never had a trial where I use so much written discovery before. Right. Well, you know, and, I mean, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that one of the things in your closing that I love so much, and, and there's a lot to talk about there, but is you basically just walk the jury through these years of them denying there being any damage, in, in, which especially was interesting because it sounds like their defense in the case was to say, yeah, it was dangerous and we knew it was dangerous, but so did Mr. Acosta and so did Roof Depot and everybody else that they were trying to blame. So it's weird that they would take that tack at the same time when they're answering discovery and saying, we don't know of anything dangerous. Yeah, I, no, I mean, they, they were talking out of both sides of their mouth, obviously, yeah. and I was able to hammer that home in closing because they were saying on the one hand, we didn't know about it. Well, if we did, we put up a warning sign. Then after that, they're like, we didn't know who put up the warning sign. It's not a really good warning sign. Basically what it was is on the wall where the ladder was, there was a, like a frowny face that right. said hatch broken, hatch or hatch broken, watch fingers or something like that. I, yeah, I wrote it down. It said hatch broken, watch fingers and head and then a sad face. Yeah, it's a sad face. And I asked him <laughs> in the depot and I played this in the my opening, you know, the owner of Athena. I was like, is this an a, Athena approved sign? He's like, well, it is a warning. I was like, well, does Athena use sad faces? He's like, no, we don't use sad faces. And, you know, was just like, he, he, he couldn't he couldn't say that that was a valid warning. But they still right. tried to say that and the, the attorney tried to hammer that. And right. kept holding it up for the jury, you know, look at this warning, look at this warning. And the jury audibly laughed every single time yeah. he did that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it seems so sort of unprofessional and cartoony. I mean, it's like, you know, one step below, like skull and crossbones or like <laughs> right, right. hung out well, because after, eyes. after the fact, someone had drawn like a made it a penis. Oh my god! Wait, was that part of the sign he's holding up? <laughs> no, no, but uh, like the day of, it wasn't. But then, like when the when our expert did the inspection, it had become like a penis. So, like, <laughs> so the sign was like, uh, it was crazy, and That's he was amazing. still just hammering it that this is a sign. And, that know, is amazing. Yeah, I do think one of the things when I was reading your your closing and thinking about the discovery and the discovery responses, and it it just made me think of a of something that I, th I think, especially for newer lawyers, when you're you're drafting your allegations in the complaint, you're just kind of thinking about the elements that you have to get out in your complaint. And when you're sending your discovery, you're just thinking about the questions that you need to ask and the information you want. But 
um, you never know when you're going to end up getting like a really good either admitted allegation and a complaint or a really good discovery response that you're going to end up using and hammering and blowing up at trial. Yeah. Um, and I reading yours and, and, and how organized they were, it just made me think about how sometimes I need to do a better job of thinking about that. I might, I might need to, how I word these might really matter later. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that th this is a case that I want to like use for young attorneys. Cause I, you know, I go to my law school and talk a lot and just, cause we, you know, when you're a law clerk, at least for me, I got thrown in to do discovery. I didn't know what a form interrogatory, I didn't know how it all fit into the right. pieces of the puzzle. Right. But I think if you can show them like this and, you know, when Teresa and I were, you know, we're looking to hire somebody and this is going to be a training tool, like look how big of an impact how we worded this was and their response was and Teresa is phenomenal writer and she holds their feet to the fire I love it she's aggressive she does not let defense attorneys off the hook um, and she makes them answer exactly per code because you use that in trial we use it all the time and Teresa you can talk more about about what you do with that yeah I mean I think the biggest thing for me is every set of discovery we're propounding and when I'm reviewing it for responses I'm just thinking about how is this going to look in front of the jury? That's really what I care about. And I think a lot of time people sort of limit themselves to, okay, what is the information I can get in discovery to build up their case as opposed mm -hmm. to how can I actually use this in the long run? So right. I am the person who will send, you know, 20 plus page meet and confer letters. I'll do phone calls with defense counsels for hours, just really nitpicking that stuff and they hate it. I mean, you know, I'm sure you've all been there before where they're like, oh, you're really going to make me answer this per code. And I'm like, yeah, I need the magic words in there. because That's the only way ultimately I'm going to be able to show this to a jury. So it's time consuming and sometimes it gets very nitpicky. But just like Dan said, this is the proof that it really does pay off and it's really yeah. worthwhile. So Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like digital law marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is, is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie yeah. cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. 
Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website, and you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. It, and it really is just so important to go through that discovery process. And like you said, have those have those uh, meet and confer meetings where you're really uh, going through everything. Because I mean, it, even if you if it, even if it doesn't come up in front of the jury, just when you're going in front of the judge for your motion to compel or maybe a motion for sanctions, I mean, you want to show how you've really gone through everything with the other side and and they still didn't do it, you know, so it, it, it is extremely important. Yeah. And, and I also, I, I've heard Sean Clagg and I've talked to him about this great, great trial lawyer in Vegas, but um, you know, he, he, his whole point is like, if we all just held their feet to the fire and all filed motions on the, as the plaintiff's bar, we're going to start getting a lot better responses early on, you know, yeah. because I think the defense industry, they realize that most plaintiff attorneys are not really going to make a big deal about it. Cause we don't get, we don't bill by the hour. Right. 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 If we all did it in force, I think we're going to get a lot better responses. Yeah. You know, it's, it, you know, just a sidebar for a second here. I mean, you know, one of the things that our firm has gotten, especially recently, is that when we file motions for sanctions, they try to pull some of our other motions for sanctions and say that this is like our, the MO of our law firm. And I always tell a judge, like, look, I mean, you know, if they don't do what they're supposed to do in discovery, this is the remedy under the Civil Practice Act. We're just following what the Civil Practice Act says. So, um, but you know, it's just funny that they uh, have done that. So, I and I, you know, all my judge friends I talk to is like the only way that the defense are going to do what they're supposed to do is if you, you know, hold their feet to the fire. And and everybody needs to do that. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Well, uh, there, so there's a number of things what, that I want to talk about in this case. I mean, also in, including the fact that you all tried this during the time of COVID. So I, I am interested to hear you know, exactly what was done for that. But I, I also want to talk about, um, they seem to, in their defense of this case, seem to pull out every sort of trick in the book. I mean, you know, they, on the one hand, tried to accept responsibility. On the other hand, tried to say, well, Mr. Acosta should have known, uh, or Horizon Lighting, his employer should have known, or Roof Depot should have done something about it. Um, you know, and then when it came to his, his meds, um, you know, they had brought in an expert to say that his medicals were unnecessary or that he didn't need it in the future and then brought in an expert to challenge the medical bills. So you guys really did sort of face like all the different, you know, defense tools, which makes you almost think from the defense side, like sometimes you don't want to throw everything at the other side, but, you know, because it can undercut your, your defense. But I mean, you guys really did have to fight on every front here. Yeah, no, we did. Um, but it all ended up being a huge gift. Honestly, right. I think this verdict would probably have been cut in half, at least if you had had a good defense attorney who said, look, we accept responsibility. We screwed up here. You know, just yeah. doing what they, what they should have done would yeah. have cut this verdict a lot. I, I think it was a huge gift when they brought when they, you know, they had Sabrosa, which we were going to flip on them. We actually were able to keep it out. But we had, you know, this case had everything we worry about. Right. The attorney referred treatment, lean doctors. Yeah. Uh, workers comp involved there was a big workers comp hybrid um our guy sabrosa you know looking normal going to a shooting range they had video of this guy you know he's like he's got a like a um, tank top on tat like tattoos he's carrying beer you know going to the shooting range like the, just like if you think about like all the worst danger points in all of our trials i mean this kind of had it but a lot of it we were able to you know like do the judo yeah. stuff that mitnick talks about and just flip everything on them 
And it really just boiled down to they're, they're trying to do every single thing they can to avoid responsibility. And Teresa Cross, their billing expert, Nancy Frazier Molkowski, and just did a phenomenal job. And then as Teresa will talk about, we were able to flip that on them because whenever the defense is bringing in a billing person to say that, for example, that the bills that the lean doctor charged were in the 90th percentile or whatever. And then, you know, she's saying that it should be in the 50th percentile. Instead of getting in the weeds, if you look at the big picture, and I think that the righteousness can come from us, is that they're really just making a classist argument, right? As you I think you saw if you read my closing, it's just they're really just saying our guy who's a lowly electrician, high school education, should not deserve the best doctors. He just right. shouldn't, he shouldn't have that right, shouldn't have that ability. I don't get, you know, sure, we may have caused his back to be ruined the rest of his life, but he doesn't deserve the best. And I was able to flip that and say, you know, for sure, these CEOs of these corporations, they're going to the 99th percentile doctor. They're going to pay whatever it takes if someone's going to cut the bones in their spine. So Teresa set it up beautifully in her cross so that I then can argue about this whole class. It was a, it was a class argument. And not only did they hurt them, but they're putting them down further um, at the trial. So, yeah, a, a lot of those things they did, are, I think, were a big gift for us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I did love the the arguments you made about uh, about basically saying that they were just making the argument that he's not entitled to the best medical care when everybody else is. But Teresa, I'd love to hear your take on how you uh, how you um, cross examine some of these experts, because, uh, the, you know, these billing experts have been popping up more and more uh, in cases. And, um, you know, and it really doesn't matter. I mean, how bad your injuries are. You know, I have, I have one client who it was burned badly. He was in a, a medically induced coma for six months and then had to have his eyes taped shut for a year. And yeah. they're coming in, you know, trying to challenge his medical bills. And I was, you know, and I'm kind of asking this guy, I'm like, at what point during the six months when he's in a coma, is he supposed to say, hold on a second, how much are you charging me for all this? You know, we got to do something else. Um, you know, it, it just makes wow, no sense. That is crazy. But, yeah. oh my God. Um, but Teresa, talk about how you, uh, how, how you uh, face these types of experts. Yeah, so um, this was actually the first billing expert that we've had on a case um, that's gone to trial, actually. So for me, approaching it, um, when I did her deposition, she spent a lot of time trying to go through all the technical aspects of, you know, this is the equation I use to cut down medical bills, and this is why, you know, it's reasonable. And, you know, I really got into the weeds with her on that during depo, going through all of these different sources she uses, what are the codes, all of this. And I realized if I tried to do that at trial, number one, I still didn't really understand it myself. Right. Yeah. Um, I Probably, I mean, I still don't even really understand it. And I think I would have lost the jury. So for me, it was more important just to attack her on a lot of other stuff I knew we had on her. Um, so Mahalski is a pretty well-known defense medical bill expert in California. So she... I think in the last five years has testified 100% of the time on behalf of the defense at trial. Um, so the way I structured my cross was starting out by going through, you know, her bias. She only testifies for defense, threw in some questions like, well, your job is really just to cut down the medical bills, right? And, you know, she couldn't really say no to that because in every single case, she testifies on behalf of the defense and in fact does cut down medical bills. Um, and then I went into what Dan was talking about, you know, um, the percentile she uses to determine the reasonable and necessary value. Uh, basically, it's like the spectrum in the books that you can get 
anywhere from the 50th up to the 90th percentile. And you look at that percentile to find out what a doctor would charge for a specific procedure at that level. And so what that means is it's not 50% of 100%. It's not, it, it means that it at the 50th percentile level, 50% of, of providers are charging that amount or more or that amount or less. And then at the 75th percentile, 75% of physicians are charging that amount or less, if that sort of makes sense. So it's like a median yeah. as opposed to an yeah. average. Um, so I was trying to show, okay, well, the 75th percentile versus the 90th percentile, it could be really different. It could be, you know, at the 75th percentile, maybe it's $100,000 for a procedure, but at the 90th percentile, it could be $400,000. It, it's not, you know, 90% right. of the 100%. So I was trying to show, you know, that there, it, there could be really big differences between the two, um, but all it means is that at that one level, that's what they're charging. Um, so then I go through, you know, okay, well, it's data taken from the whole United States. It could be, you know, what a doctor charges in Iowa is different than what a doctor charges in Beverly Hills. And it goes back to this idea that, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, our client had the right to choose the doctor he wanted to go to and the person he wanted to cut into his spine and the person he trusted to cut into his spine happens to be a doctor in Beverly Hills who, uh, who, bills at the 90th percentile as opposed to the 75th. Right. Um, and then I was also able to show that her company, when they do cost projections on behalf of plaintiffs, uh, actually have in the past, at least, um, estimated charges for the same procedures that are higher than what she was saying at cost in our case. Um, and that was yeah. some really great uh, stuff that I got from Dordick, Gary Dordick, who had done a cross with her maybe like five years ago. Um, surprisingly, even though he crossed her on basically the exact same thing, she was completely unprepared when I started <laughs> asking her about it in trial and was definitely a little wiggly about answering well, uh, it. You know? she's, she's underselling <laughs> it. A little, I've never seen an expert sweat, blink so many times, like red in the face. <laughs> and it, but, but just one tip here I think is important when you're when you're trying cases with co-counsel like figure out which personality is going to fit best with which defense expert, right. you know? Cause I think if I had done that, you know, she, the, the witness first comes across it like a nice middle-aged woman, you know? And I think if I had, you know, I'm more aggressive than Teresa. She's has a lot more calm way to just step-by-step step build the brick of the house, build a brick, brick, brick by brick to build the house essentially. And I think I, I, I would have, I would have had trouble just not wanting to go for the jugular on the, all that stuff. So I think it was really, it, it was so much more effective having someone like Teresa do that kind of cross, you know, and I think it's important when you're setting up your trials and you're trying, hopefully you're trying it with somebody else, you really figure out how, how's the personality mesh going to work well, depending on the witness, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think you have to be mindful of that. Like you, even when you're deposing experts, you know, there's some experts that, that, that you can come at straight on. There's sometimes experts where it's better to sort of let them explain stuff to you um, and, you know, just see what they'll say when you really just, you know, when you're, when you just don't understand, <laughs> they just have to yeah. explain it to you, yeah. you know, but like keeping that in mind, you don't always have to, um, you know, prove you're the smartest person in the room or prove that you, you have done your homework to the expert. You know, there's lots of different ways to approach it. Although Teresa, it certainly sounds like 
you had done your homework. And I, I just always, I, I find this kind of expert. I understand when it happens in discovery, because it's sort of like all kinds of stuff happens in discovery. That's just about knocking down the numbers or stuff that they're going to do in pleadings that they wouldn't do in front of a jury. I really don't understand this billing stuff in front of a jury because I right. feel like every human Every adult human can relate to getting medical bills and things like that that they have no control over that are too high or seeing what their insurance company pays versus what they have to pay and feeling completely powerless about that. So just I, I don't know the idea of throwing that in front of a jury. I feel like, does it work? I guess it must work, but I, I don't I, get it. I don't know. I mean, I think it's kind of just one of these defense convention things yeah. that they talked about five years ago and then everyone thinks they have to do it but i think it just it really gives us i mean i'm sure there's defense attorneys listening here but it really does <laughs> give us a lot of fodder if we handle yeah. it right because because then i it, especially if they attack the lean stuff you know here i totally owned it i was like yeah he, he was having trouble getting the right treatment through the workers comp system he came to me and i gave him a list of a few doctors and i said thank god there's doctors like dr mobine mm -hmm who are great surgeons who can charge the most, the best in the field, the top 1% in this field, he's willing to treat the lowly electrician who has no high school education, who can't afford it. I mean, thank God we have doctors like that out there, that they're mm -hmm. actually doing it for, for a good cause, you know? And I, it just, when they attack so hard on that, we really have the ability to flip it on them. Right. And I think that most jurors nowadays are going to totally appreciate that because they could see themselves in their shoes. Yeah. I mean, in my client's shoes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let, let me talk about two other parts of the damages that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that, uh, that Mr. Costa didn't like directly go to the hospital or go get treatment. He tried to continue working, couldn't. Um, and then, and then also, as I mentioned, they brought in an expert who basically either uh, tried to undercut what treatment he had already got, or at least the treatment that he was uh, schedule that was in the life care plan to get in the future um, to say that it was unnecessary. Talk about how you handled those two issues, especially the, the issue of, you know, somebody who doesn't go uh, to get medical treatment right away, because that can be an issue that, that uh, can present problems in a case. Yeah, no, and it, that is exactly, exactly what happened. He, he got up from the door sandwiching him walked around. He actually took a bunch of photos. Like he took photos of him climbing back down the ladder because his boss told him to took photos of the warning sign after the fact finished working that day, like climbing up around. And then he just like, he just wasn't going away. Like this numbness down his right hand wasn't going away, sat in his car for a while. A couple hours later, he's like, look, I just need to go to urgent care. So he goes to urgent care. And then that starts the slow conservative treatment. But, you know, I think, I think the way to deal with that is really spending a lot of time with your client. I mean, I spent yeah. <laughs> so many hours with him. Like he became like a brother, you know, just meals together. I'm a big believer in all that. And just finding out his history of just being the tough guy, you know, um, kind of raised that way with his brother, his dad, just real blue collar family, never complained would all you know just take bumps and bruises just take big hits is how he described it. it's like look i work in a physical you know sometimes you just take a hit i thought this was a hit that would just go away and so i just had to develop that story with him of the type of guy he was and then we used his family friends co-workers that Teresa did the directs of and just to develop the story through them so like a mosaic yeah. and then they would describe that story and so then it's like well yeah when this guy so it makes sense why this guy would keep trying to work because he loves his job, one. Two, he wanted to get the job done. 
for to, to you know to be a good employee and then three he's just not the type that rushes to the hospital or stops what he's doing he's just that tough type and i think if your client has a righteous legit story legit case mm -hmm. then you're gonna find that story it doesn't matter i mean like i think even if it took two weeks to get to the doctor we all have some of those cases you know right if there's if there's a good reason behind it i think it actually can help you with a jury because it's like wow this person is really it must have been really bad for them to yeah. want to go to the doctor Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting <laughs> dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now, Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them and uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services yeah and I mean LTS I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we, yes. we're on a first name basis <laughs> you know my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial texts, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. Steve, I hate to get, I get off track, but it's, it's come up a couple of times. And I think it comes up for a lot of lawyers when they're screening potential cases where they've got somebody who's hurt on the job. And there's a case um, or a claim that's, that you think is going to fall outside of uh, workers comp, but you know that there's still also this workers comp case and what's happening in that case and how could that affect your case? Um, can you just talk a little bit about how you approach that if it affected this case at all, if the jury got to know anything about it or anything like, or if you did anything with it in Vordire? 
Oh yeah. It had every, I mean, this, this case was like, had workers comp intertwined through all which way. And, you know, even to get it out of workers comp is, you know, was still pretty tough because in California we have a case called Kinsman. I know you have a national listeners, but basically it has to be a concealed danger that the plaintiff's employer did not know about um, in order to get out of workers comp. Otherwise, if the employer knew about it or should have known about it, then it's workers comp. You can't have a third party case. So that's number one on liability. Number two, when we were strategizing, we were trying to figure out ways to keep workers comp out um, of the case. And there's good, there's good jury instructions in California about how the jury can't consider workers comp, but it was just too tough in this case because he, one of the biggest reasons why he went outside of workers comp to go to see a surgeon was because the authorizations under workers comp were just not coming through. And even his own doctors who we deposed, there are some great doctors in the work comp system that are neutral QME doctors, you know, qualified medical examiners, meaning totally independent doctors in the workers comp system and his workers comp case, they were giving us everything. They're like, yeah, like he needs the surgery. And one doctor was like, I'm fush. I was frustrated for him because the insurance carrier through workers comp was not giving him the authorizations he needed. And so then it became almost like a mitigation of damages. Like it was, we pulled him out of workers comp so that he could get the surgeries he needed. So again, I mean, we just were able to flip it, but yeah, I mean, initially we were scared of it, but I, the jury gave us every dollar for the workers comp lien. And then obviously every dollar for the medical bills after that, above that. And just to add on to that too, the jury um, had a lot of experience with work comp um, during voir dire. That was something that came up as sort of a topic that Dan discussed with them. And a lot of them had experiences with slow processes of getting approvals th through work comp or had been injured on the job before. So I think they were able to relate to that and they understood um, some of the issues that our client had just getting the consistent treatment that he needed. And so when the defense tried to make that a really big argument, you know, look, you know, he he waited all this time to get a surgery approval or, you know, all this other stuff. I don't think it really landed with the jury at all because they already knew, you know, that that was just sort of to be expected. Right. Yeah, I address it head on in Bois You have to. If it's yeah. going to come out, you've got to talk about work comp, you know, because some jurors are going to say like, well, and, and I've had many focus group jurors say, well, he had, he got recovery through workers comp. Doesn't he have workers comp? Like why should someone else, you know, so you got to address that and make sure, you know, people aren't going to shortchange you because of that. Yeah. I was wondering about on the, on the verdict form, there was a question about whether or not horizon lighting knew of uh, this danger. And, uh, and I, I saw in the closing that you told the jury that if they, if they found that they did know about it, then that meant he was going to lose. And I didn't really understand that, but it, but that would mean that he's basically uh, barred by the workers comp bar. In, in California? Yeah. So it, okay. this was a complicated jury. You know, you, usually we're used to the like three questions. Was the defendant negligent? Substantial factor? What are the damages? In this case, because it was, you know, we were getting outside. It was workers comp, um, basically exception to any workers injured on the job uh, has to have workers comp exclusively. This was an exception to that. So they had to answer all the questions to find that it was a concealed condition that his employer did not know about. So I had to hammer on every question because if they answered um, yes to any of those, I had to say, that means he's losing. That means right. we lose. That means he gets zero if you answer yes to any of these questions. Because I really, I was worried. There was like eight questions and I had yeah. to make sure they knew you cannot answer yes because that's literally zero. That means we lose. Yeah, yeah it was a, it's an intense verdict form. 
Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about it. I was scared. It was really scary. It's like so poorly written. There's so many double negatives yeah. in the way the legislature wrote it out. And even the judge is like, look, I agree. This is crappy. You, we, we need to change the way these are written. So it's extremely confusing. Yeah. 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 Well, I kept looking at him and being like, wait, is this good or bad? Like yeah. <laughs> it's taking me a minute. So yeah. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, I, I do want to make sure that I talk about um, how you tried this case during COVID. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what uh, procedures were put in place or what how it changed the way you handled the, the trial at all uh, with uh, COVID procedures? Yeah, I mean, uh, we went there the, a few days before for the FSC. I think that was all remote over Zoom. And then the judge is like, look, I'm calling up 35 jurors to come up and, you know, be here for jury selection on Tuesday. So this was like the Thursday before. And then on Tuesday, we show up and he's like, I've called jurors, about 24 showed up. And the plan was to have everyone wear a mask. So judge, witnesses at all times, everyone has to wear a mask. When I'm talking, when the witness is talking, everyone at all times. But then he put all the jurors in the box. So he did uh, what's called a six pack in California. Basically, you have six, six, six. So a six and like sitting on the 12 in the jury box and six up front. And mm -hmm. so you're going to question those 18. And shockingly, he did not go through any hardship stuff. Like no, nothing about COVID didn't even come up once. And I had debated a long time. We used Harry Plotkin as our jury consultant and talked to Gary Dordick and a few others. Just do we even address COVID? And the consensus was just, no, don't, don't even bring it up. And it didn't come up even once, just everyone in mask. It actually gave me the opportunity in jury selection though, to get them talking more, I think. Cause you know, we're always fearful of, is, it, is it the jury going to talk to me? Right. And I, I just talked, I just addressed like, look, I know we're on mask. And I told them, uh, you know, it's, it's so much of what we do. We're trying to determine if this is the right case for you, or if you're the right juror for this case is we read nonverbal cues. We all do that. Right. And I had a few people give examples and I said, look, we, it's so much harder, right? You can't see people smile. We all have been doing this the last year and a half. Where we can't really tell. Are someone smiling, frowning? How do they feel about something? So I was like, it's no different here. So please speak up and because we can't read a lot of things. So please just tell us how you feel verbally if you can. And I think that really helped get a lot of people talking because they totally understood it. Um, besides that, honestly, there weren't really many chain differences. It's just trying a case in a mask, which I thought was going to be horrible, but you get used to it after a while. Right. And it's not so bad. We were really scared about losing jurors because we, we had 14 total. So 12 and two alternates and uh, we lost two And the defense, I think was seeing how things were going. And he wasn't, if we lost another one, he was going to just, he wasn't going to step to 11 jurors or 10 right. jurors. And he was going to be like, Oh no, no we'll, we'll take a mistrial and retry this thing. Mm -hmm. So we were getting so scared the last day or two because a juror would show up super late. And we're like, Oh, we're toast. Like we're just going to be a mistrial, but thank God those 12, you know, made it the whole way through. Um, but yeah, I mean, besides that, honestly, it was crazy. I mean, there really wasn't much COVID did not have a big impact besides the mass Teresa. What do you think? Yeah, I think, um, the judge was really smart to not bring it up in hardship, or I think a lot of people would have, you know, tried to use that as a way to get out of jury selection. Um, but since he didn't, I think his, I mean, I don't want to speak for the judge, but I'm pretty sure what he was trying to do was think, okay, well, if it's a big enough issue for somebody, they'll bring it up themselves and no one brought it up. So, you know, besides that, everyone was really excited to be there. They took their job really seriously. Um, we had one witness appear remotely. 
uh, via WebEx or whatever the system is that they have. And um, that was okay. But I think honestly, I prefer the live witnesses even with the masks on. Um, They were able to still emote really well. And I think we had worked with our witnesses enough. So, you know, they felt comfortable on the stand. Our client was gave some really great testimony, even with the mask on that didn't really affect it at all. Um, so yeah, it, it turned out to be less of an issue than I thought it was going to be. It, did you get a chance to talk with your jury afterwards or are you allowed yeah. to do that in California? What? Yeah, no, they almost, you know, nine of them, I think stuck around. Um, you know, they were, they were just pretty furious with the company, with these corporations. Um, a, a big issue was comparative liability, right? Because our guy, said in his depot that he's an expert in going through roof hatches had gone through 600 plus roof hatches in his career so he knows what a safe roof hatch feels like and that was our biggest hurdle was that when he when he lifted the roof hatch initially he admitted that it did feel heavier meaning it didn't just pop up like a safe roof hatch would be if it was spring loaded so you know my whole theme then became like the first words out of my mouth when i got up there for opening statements was that Luis Acosta had seconds. They had years. Right. I just repeated that very slowly and let it sit there and then kept bringing it back whenever they would just attack our client. It's just like, look, he had seconds to react to this. They had years to do it. And so they, and and they all said afterwards like that, that really summed up the whole thing for, for them is that they didn't really want to put any um, liability on our guy because of that. They didn't really talk about COVID too much after the fact, um, I mean, they, I'm trying to remember what else they said. I mean, I think they were, I mean, they were just nice. I mean, the defense attorney was out there trying to cross-examine them because he couldn't believe <laughs> how they ruled and he was getting really aggressive. I could tell a couple of the jurors were just getting pretty upset well, with him. Yeah. But. He was yeah, really shocked that his, uh, that the jury did not believe his billing expert. And something that Dan said earlier in this podcast was, um, you know, uh, why should our client go to a discount surgeon just because of his job? And, you know, these people would definitely go to the best if they could. And I heard one of the jurors ask the defense attorney, well, you would go to the best surgeon if you were in that position, wouldn't yeah. you? Um, so that definitely stuck with them for sure. Yeah, gosh. Uh, yeah. And I, I wanted to make sure to talk about um, some of the themes that you used in both the opening and closing. You mentioned one of the two seconds versus two years, which is so effective. And especially when you've got that email where and you, and you read, uh, you know, I, I uh, somewhere I actually wrote down what the email said, but it, it's pretty damning, um, you know, what they're telling them back in September of 2014. And then for them just to sort of uh, ignored or, or keep postponing it. And then, um, sorry. So just because, you know, we try a lot of premises cases and that's a theme I've used in other cases. It's just because it really more often than not, when they try to talk about open and obvious or it's your client's fault for being clumsy, it oftentimes does just come down to the client had a milliseconds to react. They had years to get the right flooring in, or they had years to perfect their system to make sure that the custodian or the worker is mopping properly. It's like, like I think the seconds versus years can actually apply to a lot, it's a, a lot of our premises cases. It, it's a great theme, and, I, and I'll say just not just for premises cases. We've used it in product liability cases right. where you're talking about a manufacturer who knows about a problem for you know 10, 20, 30 years, and then you've got your client who did something that happened within the matter of three to four seconds. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it it absolutely is a a powerful uh, um, message to give to the jury. 
Yeah. And it's super relatable. I mean, how many times do you do, do you like grab a thing or go to carry a thing and be like, this is a little precarious. I could drop this. I mean, like, you know, but like, it's just, it happens fast. And then in retrospect, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, you're like, oh yeah, you know that I should have known that was going to fall or whatever. Everybody can relate to making that kind of decision in a short period of time or hearing a noise that you don't put together, you know, instantly. Um, and so, yeah, so anyway, just very, very powerful. And I agree can be used in so many different circumstances. Um, the, um, one of, one of the other themes you used in your closing, which I loved, uh, there's a couple of themes you used in your closing that, that I really loved. And I want to make sure we talk about is one is the, is the defendants gambling. And you sort of went through the, uh, different ways they had gambled here. One gambling with delaying this fix and then, you know, gambling that, uh, basically that they could pretend like they didn't know it, they, they could deny it. Uh, and then the final way is they gamble by deflecting it to others. So it's like a delay, deny, deflection uh, gambling, I thought was uh, just a really nice theme, you know, because it sort of explains why this hadn't happened in two years. I mean, because it's, you know, it's not that many people are using the roof hatch. And then you just have what happened that you have it happen this one time. But that's, that's enough. Yeah, I, I actually, my my buddy, D Dan Ambrose, I don't know if you all know, I mean, he's, uh, he was actually helping me prep with this. And he was just like, yeah, they're totally just gambling, aren't they? So I was like, that was kind of seeping with me the whole throughout the whole trial. And then I was just like, tech email myself like yeah this is another gamble this is a gamble how can i you know refine this and to make it you know what they were really doing because then by using the gambling you know i was able to reenact kind of like go into their boardroom or all right. huddling together like a smoke i they just kind of like want the jury to get like a smoke filled room with a bunch of like old white dudes sitting back deciding like how how do they like try to like cut corners? You know, how do, how does these, how do these big corporations just try to sit back and say, okay, how can we save money for the bottom line? And I just want to get that image for the jury. And I thought that was the, the, the picture they got is like they, the first thing they say, Oh, we don't need to pay to fix this right away. No one's going to use it. We don't really care. Let's use it to, to funnel money to rent paying tenants. And then, Oh, like once they find out, well, they'll never, I mean, once someone gets hurt by it, they'll, they'll never know. Like they'll never know we knew about it. Right. So you, and just having that image of just like the smoke filled back room that people hate, you know, yeah. or just like people cut corners and big corporations. I just wanted that image and the gambling just kind of came to me through or the, the three gambles kind of came to me throughout trial. What was so great about it too, is that while you were talking about that, I mean, I'm interested if this is how it played out in real life, because reading it while you were talking about that and you were talking about accepting responsibility during your closing, there were a lot of objections from defense counsel. Right. And did you notice that, Steve? I felt yeah. like it was really emphasizing your point about not accepting responsibility. Yeah. Like the timing was not great. And I'm wondering if that's how it, um, in your view, if that's how it kind of came across in real yeah. life, because that's how it came across reading it. Yeah, no, it was great. It was uh, he was doing me huge favors. It was like because <laughs> then I was just like let it let it sit there, and then the slide <laughs> sit there, and then the just like marinate in there, and then the judge would kind of reemphasize like what the attorney says is not argument. It's just you know, but he's allowed to do this, and kind of gave me per even more permission. Yeah. To go yeah. heavier. Yeah. Oh, it was a huge gift that he kept objecting over that. Stupid yeah. Stuff. I mean, and I always tell young lawyers this, I mean, be careful what you object to in front of the jury, because yeah. unless you're really right, I mean, right. all you're doing is highlighting whatever the other side is saying. Yeah. You and know, the timing, really the timing, like, like during the accepting responsibility being <laughs> yeah. like, I don't, I they think that misstates the law. It's just like my yeah. dude. Yeah. No, that is, that is very true. That is yeah. very true.
Well, I, I want to make sure I mention a couple of other uh, uh, a couple of other closing uh, themes that you had. One, I loved the uh, how you flipped uh, sympathy uh, on them and talked about crocodile tears and made it seem like. Uh, and and I, I think this is all true. It made it seem like they, the, the defense was the one seeking sympathy because they were basically trying to claim that they were a small company. And I, I guess I'm specifically talking about Mass Realty, right. who was a uh, who was the essentially an absentee owner. I mean, they basically just turned. It sounds like they owned it and then basically just turned it over to Athena Management, and then Athena Management uh, took control from there. And I, and I and and I forgot to mention that in the comparative fault analysis, they gave 80% of the liability to Athena and 20% to Mass Realty. But right. I just loved how you, you know, did this theme of the uh, of, of sympathy and, and how that don't, you know, that they were there, that the defense was the one seeking sympathy, and you didn't want sympathy. And, and then the, uh, the crocodile tears story, I thought was a great story as well. Yeah, no, I mean, because it, it was just so ridiculous, like in his opening, how what what I basically did is just introduce the the idea of crocodile tears and where it came from, how crocodiles, when they would eat their prey, it would look like they're crying. And then that's where the saying crocodile tears came from, because clearly the crocodile is not any showing any remorse to its prey. <laughs> but that's why I just kind of like used that and then talked about and then I introduced all the times where they, you know, were saying things like, oh, it's a mom and pop shop. It's just a it's a doctor and his daughter own this company. You know, there's a small time just trying to just trying to get by and how like they're accepting responsibility and all that. And so I had that as like, those are the tears, but then let's see their true colors. And then, then introduce like all of the times, even throughout trial, they weren't accepting responsibility. And then in his opening statement, I showed his opening again, where he's like, and we're going to ask for a defense verdict. So all this stuff they're saying about their, their, that, you know, they made a mistake or they did all this stuff. It's all, it's all bullshit. Frankly. I mean, they were just doing yeah. it for crocodile tears. Right. And right. It's not corporate responsibilities is not corporations accepting responsibility. <laughs> And saying they're just doing it for sympathy and then put up that jury instruction and said how we don't want any of that because that's not within the law. We don't want sympathy. Like it's natural for us to feel sympathetic to a human being who's hurting, but we don't want that. That's not fair. That's not just. And then, but this is all they're looking for. And so, yeah, it was just, I mean, they gave me so much fodder, honestly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I was just really fortunate to have this defense position they were taking. Yeah, it's like I say, I mean, sometimes the defendants who fight you the hardest and fight you on everything. I mean, it can be a pain when you're going through it. But at the end of the day, it's really a gift because um, the the some of the most effective lawyers, uh, like you said at the beginning, Daniel, there's a lawyer here in town who's a, a great defense attorney. And, and the reason why is because he keeps verdicts very low because he comes in and he accepts responsibility, says he's sorry, you know, basically and says, you yeah. know, we're just we're just here to find a fair value for what this is about. And then and then, that, you know, and he, he really does a great job of framing the framing the debate about you know what's a fair value yeah and, we actually um, file mills on that because yeah, it's it's yeah. so effective like we yeah. file a apology remorse uh mill right Teresa? that that we always oh, file yeah. because we're scared Every of that time. because it's so effective yeah yeah absolutely absolutely um well let's talk about the damages and how you presented the damages because you really uh did a, a nice job of of walking through how this had, had really affected uh, uh lewis acosta and i and one thing i failed to mention at the beginning is he, he was he's 35 years old he's very active sound like he was a pretty active cycler um doing around 60 to 80 miles a week or something like that and just you know try and then obviously uh, you know an electrician where he's climbing up and down things lifting heavy things and you know just somebody who seemed to be living a pretty good life he, he wasn't married he you know didn't have kids but that was something down the road for him and and unfortunately because of this injury was making it a whole lot harder 
Um, one of the uh, one of the analogies that I really liked, uh, and I'm I'm probably going to steal from you is um, is how you talked about you know if this were a building. Well, I stole and, that from Jerry Spence. Good, so. good. Well, let's yeah. steal from it's each other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love that. I mean, yeah. because it, it really, you know, make, gives you such a nice uh, concrete, you know, uh, pardon the pun, but a nice concrete example of, you know, if you damage something, you damage the foundation and it slowly wears away. Well, what's that worth? If it's a $200 million verdict, I mean, a building, it's worth $200 million and whatever, you know, and, and more. Yeah, just a, a, so a couple of things on the damages. Um in my direct, I reinvented my direct this time. Uh, you know, like I said, usually I spend a lot of time with the client and then I kind of go, I, I usually start with talking about the incident and then go into kind of their background and then go chronologically. This time Ambrose and I and the client were working together during a weekend during trial. And we're, I was just like, you know, I just don't feel this. Like, I just don't think it's really going to be that as effective. So we came up with you know, all right, let's, let's talk about the incident and then let's just go jump right into uh, quickly about his background and then just go right into, well, you know, Lewis, I, I want to talk about all the ways that this incident affected your life. So let's just, I want to go through one by one. And then I use an easel and I never do because I have horrible handwriting, but I was like, this, I'm going to try it. And so I put up, you know, an easel, got a marker and just went number one. He's like, well, you know, my, my work. So I write down work. I was like, what else? And then, you know, he said, you know, my, my living situation, what else? And then goes through, you know, my, my social life, what else? And then, you know, we'll just go down the list. And, you know, when we had practiced, cause we didn't really practice, I, I didn't want it to be like a scripted. I never did, wanted to be scripted yeah. with the client, but you know um, I knew there was about six or seven things. Obviously pain was one of the biggest. And so it was kind of funny in trial is like, we're getting down to like number six and he still hasn't said pain. And I'm like, well, what else? <laughs> and he's like, uh, like, please say pain, please say pain, yeah. please say pain. That's like our biggest damage. Come on, say pain. Right. <laughs> he's like, oh yeah, 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 pain. And so, so anyway, so then I went and, and then I was like, okay, thanks. I, I want to go through each of these. Tell me what your sleep was like before and what was it like after. And so we'd spend like five minutes on each one. So we weren't boring the jury and he wasn't sounding whiny, but we just kind of talk about the change in each one. And then I used that paper for my non-economic damages. I had a, a slide or two where just like my click would be one of the words like sleep would pop up and then I'd talk about it to the jury and then do go through each one again. So I think that really helped me with the non-economic damages because I always struggled because in California, we have a list. There's like nine things. It's mental anguish, anxiety, all those different items. And usually my closings, I kind of just wait till I get to the damages portion of the verdict form to start talking about that. But here I was kind of able to do put the non-economic damages in his words and have concrete examples. Cause that's what the jury always says afterwards. They want concrete examples for each of those. And it was able to fit each of those into what the law allows. I think it just felt a lot better. I think it worked a lot better. The jury, you know, they said that they really helped them understand what mental anguish was when you kind of put it into lack of sleep makes you feel this way, you know, it just really helped analogize and it came through his words. So that's kind of how I did the damages. And I also, this time, I, I like I reinvented my, my whole structure of my closing. I introduced big numbers multiple times. So right. I talked about like the bad stuff. I talked about the gamble and then the crocodile tears and then talked about damages. And I wanted the, the jury start thinking 200 million, billion, you know, all those high dollars anchor super high before I even broke down the, the per year, you know, per damage dollar amounts. 
And then like, you know, like, so talk about the big numbers and then went back and then went through the verdict form and then broke down how much each damage was worth per year. Um, and then I think I asked for 470,000 for the past. It was five years of the past. And in the future, it was like 290. But those were broken down for eight. There's eight items of non-economic damages, broke all those down like 15,000 for inconvenience per year, something like that. But then before adding it up, I went back to the building, the artwork, the LeBron James makes 40 million a year, <clears throat> thinking really big numbers because I want them to hear that multiple times before I show them I'm asking for $9 million or yeah, $9 million for future non-economic damages. And then no one bats an eye because they've heard such high numbers and I've introduced right. it multiple times. So I think it, I, like I, I'd never really done that before. I kind of just waited till the end of my closing to really introduce the big jet plane and all that stuff that obviously I've stolen from other people like sprinkling it in seemed to help you know because it gets the jury thinking about it throughout yeah well and, and I really like the uh, I really like going through the uh, um, uh, um, jury charge for uh, non-economic damages because George is the same way it gives you all of these factors and so we you know have this chart that we use in trials where we have you know a, a blank next to each one of those uh, each one of those factors and then we value them and um, and it's a it's a great way of talking about um, you know what uh, non economic damages, pain and suffering, wh what you're, what the jury's supposed to be looking at, and then what the potential value is. Teresa, I'm curious. So, how much of this stuff happens? You know, does does Daniel show up and just and say what he says? How much of it is it is it new to you, or you're like, let's see what he does this time? And how much of it is stuff that you kind of um, that you all work on together or that he kind of gets your thoughts on, because sometimes for me, it's stuff I've heard before. And sometimes I'm sitting there and I'm like, Oh, that's pretty good. I, you know, I wonder when he came up with that <laughs> <laughs> this time. Well, and, and I guess for the, all the trials that we do, um, we go over the opening and the closing before, um, they actually happen. So I have a pretty good idea of what's going to be coming. Um, for closing, you know, we were bouncing the idea of the different numbers and how to sort of break down a bunch of the non-economic damages. Um, but I, I do know that between the time we talked the night before in the office and the next morning when uh, closing actually happened, he bumped up the numbers a little bit even more. <laughs> yeah, I, that's yeah. actually true. I, we, we spent so much time like, how do we fit the numbers in to ask for eight figures? And then like that morning I was like sitting on my bed. I was like, you know what? I think I'm gonna ask for another million. I don't know. Right, right. And I just like I had to redo all the numbers that we had worked so hard on. It's yeah. like, oh, wow, you're, you're going with another million there, huh? We didn't really yeah. talk about that. Yeah, yeah exactly. But, but no, she helps. I mean, no, I mean, we work hand in hand on that stuff. I mean, yeah. every step of the way we go through my PowerPoint. Yeah. You know, she's, yeah, it's great. She's great. Yeah. Well, and that's why I ask because like a lot of times I have the PowerPoint, I have the slides on my computer, but then I'll still be going through and I'll be like, oh, I wonder, you know, especially <laughs> since nobody's really sleeping. Yeah. Um, yeah you know, exactly. I'll be like, I wonder like at what hour in the early morning he came up with that idea. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> well, and, and I should just mention, so I, I mentioned that this was a overall verdict of 12,622,000. Uh, out of that, the uh, past non-economic loss was 1.8 million. Uh, and the future uh, non-economic loss was eight million, so a total of uh, nine point eight million for uh, non-economic damages. Um, and and, and I may, we may have asked this before: Are there any caps in California? Nope, okay. uh, only on uh, on uh, MedMal, unfortunately. But uh, Nick Rowley is fighting the good fight to try to get that lifted. We have a two hundred fifty thousand dollar non-economic MedMal cap, which is one of the worst in the yeah, country for crazy. such a liberal state. Yeah, it's absurd um it's been in place in 76 
And so oh, Nick geez. and a whole bunch of people are really trying to fight hard in Sacramento to get that changed. Well, yeah, it, it it's so important. And, and two hundred fifty thousand dollars doesn't. I mean, it's ridiculous. That's, that's a ridiculous it's amount. Absurd. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, well, uh, I mean, this has been just a great talk about uh, the Acosta versus Athena management and mass realty case. Is there anything that you all want to make sure that our listeners know about that we haven't had a chance to to talk about it so far? No, I mean, look, don't be scared of these premises cases that have so many, you, you know, you think they have a lot of holes and all that. But if you have a client that you believe in who's trustworthy, you can overcome a lot of this stuff yeah, and don't yeah. be scared of asking for big money. I mean, honestly, I was going to ask for 5 million, like two weeks before trial. And again, working with Ambrose and a few other people, they're like, just, it's worth whatever you think it's worth, you know? And they kept, they, so that, that mantra kind of like, I just kept saying that to myself and I was like, well, maybe I should ask for seven. I mean, it's a lifetime. And as Panish says, you know, you kind of golden rule yourself. And I was like, man, if I couldn't be a trial lawyer, I mean, right. I wouldn't take 25 million for that. And this, this poor guy loved being an electrician and could never do that again. It's just always going to be in pain, hurts to sit, hurts to sleep. Can't really like, like getting in a relationship right now is going to be impossible for him. And so just thinking of that, I'm like, man, like this is like, like why like, maybe we should ask for eight. But then I kept doing it in my head. And I was like, well, that seems kind of low, like for the rest of his life. And so ultimately, I, I, up until the morning of, I was like, oh, we got to add another million there because this is just ridiculous. And so right, we ended up asking for right. like 13 to 14. Jerry gave us 12, six. And so, you know, I mean, I was going to ask for five two weeks before and look what yeah. happened. So I think it's like the cases are worth whatever you think it's worth. Uh, right. They don't know. And, you know, I don't, I don't think you're going to really you're really going to piss off a jury too much if you're if you really believe in the number. You asked for it. I don't think, and, and you truly feel right about it. I don't think the jury's going to get upset and punish right. you for that. They're going to punish you for other things if they're going to punish you, but I don't think that's right. going to be one of them. Well, and it, it does come back to something else that you mentioned in your closing that we we haven't talked as much about, uh, which is this this oh you know every trial in my mind is a is a battle over who is uh, honest and credible, and um, you know if if the other side, as in your case, comes off looking not honest and credible, and you do, and your client, especially, that's the most important person, if they come off looking honest and credible, then usually the jury is going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, so yeah. it, it, it really does come down to, you know, uh, you know, who, it, if, if you're credible, if you're honest, then when you, it comes down to that time to talk about what the case is worth, they're, you know, they're going to believe you as well. Which I, that's a great point, Steve. I'm glad you brought that up because what we do in all depositions where someone has had interaction with the client, I always ask in so many different ways. What, did you find him credible? Did you find him consistent? Did you find him honest? Were they a malinger? All that stuff. I get those sound bites in and then I yeah. play those in opening, like a bunch of different clips, play them during trial, closing, because I want as many different objective people or even defense attorneys, biased people saying that my guy's honest. So don't forget to do that in depots yeah, uh, yeah. because what I was able to do in closing is show how dishonest they were and then did a comparison with, well, look, but let's look at honesty of my client because you have to judge him too. And then I was able to play all these clips from all these doctors, including the defense experts saying, yes, he was credible. He was honest. On the flip side, if, if you ask that question in depot, they say they're lying. You should be able to do a mill to keep it out because it really, it really is, you know, a, well, I mean, the defense right. should be doing mills on us too, but right. that's for another podcast. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, I feel like I spoke too much. We, we can edit that out though. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. right. Raz, take that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's edit that out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> well, uh, well, let me just remind everybody, we've been talking about the Acosta versus uh, Athena Management Inc. and Mass Realty case, which was tried in Los Angeles County in August of 2021. And it, it resulted in a $12,622,000 million, verdict on behalf of Louis Acosta. And we have been talking with Daniel Kramer and Teresa Johnson from Kramer Trial Lawyers APC in Los Angeles. And you can look them up at KramerLaw.com. That's K-R-A-M-E-R Law.com. Uh, Daniel and Teresa, thank you so much for your time. No, thank you. You guys, are, thank this, you. Is, this is great. I mean, you guys are great interviewers. This is awesome. Oh, well, we enjoy it. Yeah. Easy really when you fun. got good people to interview. So uh, yeah, really fun. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website yeah so check those out if you have a trial you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need uh, positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time, and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.